When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 175. <gasps> Love the... Oh, those numbers are so satisfying. It's a nice, big, round... Not round, you know. Yeah, nice no, big I... Nice, big Nice, like, quarter number. benchmark. Yeah, benchmark number. Yeah. Welcome to episode 175 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Over at Overdrive. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jill. <laughs> I'm apparently not able to speak today. That's okay. I feel like we say that like every other episode. One of us like, words are hard now. <laughs> we um, record them in the morning. Coffee hasn't always kicked in. Yes, that's very, very true. So um, this episode is one that we inter- we uh, recorded a little while ago. Uh, we were fortunate enough to interview Karan Mahajan as a part of Cleveland Book Week. We're part of Cleveland Book Week. We were part of Cleveland Book Week. So more specifically... Cleveland Book Week is uh, was created around the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. Cleveland Book Week is relatively new. It's been going on for a couple of years. The Annisfield Wolf Book Awards are not relatively new. No. They've been here for 82 years. Uh, and the Annisfield Book Awards recognize books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and human diversity. Uh, Karan Mahajan's book is very, very much falls under that. Uh, the book is called An Association of Small Bombs. And... I don't want to even really talk about what the book is about because we go really in depth on what the book is about with Quran during the interview. Um, as we always tell you guys, when it's a live event, this one isn't loud like an American Library Association or Book Expo event would be, but it was in a big open space in front of an audience. Um, so it'll sound a little bit different. Uh, the way that it worked is the two of us interviewed him for a while then we took questions from the audience, but the audience members had microphones, and I think we did an okay job of repeating the questions as well. So you should be able to hear that part just fine. Uh, but yeah, uh, we—it was a really—I was a really great conversation, and he's a very intelligent man. He was, and I just want to sort of—I mean, you—you you mentioned this, but just sort of backtrack. So the Annisfield Wolf Book Award recognizes diversity and racism books, and it's been around for over 80 years it is a homegrown cleveland award that within the literary community is well known and well respected but i don't think it gets a lot of national recognition unless you write you know books that would sort of fall under that perhaps yeah anything like that that's a really good point um i can actually i have the their website pulled up i can give you some more information about it so exactly what jill said it it was created in 1935 by edith annisfield wolf and it was in honor of her father uh, John Annisfield and her husband Eugene Wolf to reflect her family's passion for social justice. Um, so it's like you said, it doesn't might not get a ton of recognition outside of our area, unfortunately. But in this area, I was fortunate enough to go to the actual event the night that they handed out the awards. Um, there were two thousand people at the event. Um, the place was sold the only reason there was 2000 was because they couldn't fit anymore Mm -hmm. Um, but i mean there's been some massive names that have won colson whitehead won uh several years ago 
um, there's there's been lots of really really big names and it's just a really inspiring event um, hearing all these people tell all these wonderful stories um, and again um, Kranz is right in line with it so was John Lewis there he was yeah he's I think he's every year mm-hmm. John Lewis is there um, yeah it's a big deal I mean but it's not like nationally recognized so yeah but a good way if you are looking to diversify your reading list um, a really nice if you want to kind of hear some other voices from maybe people that don't look like you really great way to do it go to the Annisfield Book Award website we'll put it in our show notes um, and you can get high quality wonderful uh, fiction nonfiction, poetry uh, really anything you're looking for they have award-winning gorgeous wonderful inspiring titles so it's all good stuff if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that, Joe? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds, and they can find us – is that right? Did I do that right? At ProBookNerds, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Nailed it. the weirdest moment. And then they can email us directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Yes, they can. And I want to remind everybody uh, in the last episode that we did, I mentioned this briefly in the intro, we are doing a interview with the uh, Penguin Publishing president <laughs> – that's, that's also satisfying. Very illiterate. Uh, we're doing an interview with the Penguin Publishing president. Uh, and what we're going to do is promote their Penguin Hotline. So if you're interested in getting some really great book recommendations from us at that point, send us either an email or a message on social media with um, your age range. You don't have to give us your specific age. Uh, the types of books that you are generally interested in, uh, and then your, a genre. So it can be for you or it can be for someone that you're shopping for during the holiday season. And you might hear your your recommendations said uh, during the interview. So uh, we'll be recording it later this month, and then we'll go up the first week of December. So I think that's everything. I think that's everything. Cool. Awesome. Well, I'm not going to hold you guys any longer. I will let you hear this interview with the incredible and inspiring Karan Mahajan on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. First, um, I'd just like to say it's it's been um, a terrific day and a half in Cleveland <laughs> so far. Um, I was astonished not just by the the stagecraft and the attentiveness with which the awards uh, were organized yesterday, but also the involvement of the community. That 1,600 people showed up to watch what could be the most boring kind of event: <laughs> five authors reading. Um, you know, it really speaks to the commitment of uh, Cleveland to literature, and um, you know, it, it's great when an award like this is so deeply associated with a city because that's not actually a common thing in the U.S. And I can think of very few other awards that um, are linked to a place the way this one is. So I hope the tradition um, continues. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, uh, the book in its most basic form is about the consequences of uh, a quote-unquote small bombing that happens in a marketplace in New Delhi in 1996 and um, its spiraling consequences 
for uh, the victims and the perpetrators and also the bystanders. And so it's attempting to give us uh, a precise and even clinical view of what happens in the aftermath of a bombing after the news crews have gone away and it's no longer quite the terrifying event it was in public consciousness. So one of the reasons that I personally seek out books from writers of other cultures than my own is because it, I like to think of them, a lot of people will take a book by someone who may not look or sound like them and then they'll use that as an all-encompassing kind of understanding of a, of a culture, which is great. I tend to think of it more as a gateway to a culture. So something that I'm really interested in is the conflicts, the Kashmiri conflicts that inspired this book. I'm curious if you could maybe give us a little bit more background on, on what that entails and then if these things are still happening today. So yeah, I mean, this is one very specific attack. Uh, obviously, there's been many attacks like this in the history of India, and they've been caused by many different groups. This one happened to be set off by Kashmiri separatists, and the history of that conflict really dates to the partition of India in 1947 you know, into India and Pakistan. And the tussle the two countries have been engaged in over Kashmir, which is a Muslim-majority state um, which acceded to India, but because it's Muslim-majority, Pakistan believes it should rightfully belong to it. Um, and of course, the Kashmiri people themselves are caught in the middle and don't really want to belong to either India or Pakistan. So you have these two uh, powers kind of skirmishing over this place. And um, India was able to sort of install sham governments for many years and, and keep the peace. But I think eventually um, the repression by India um, became very evident and physical in the 80s and 90s. And there was a, a famous massacre that happened in 1990, which uh, incited the Kashmiri people do to sort of rise up against Indian rule. At that point, Pakistan started sending more and more military aid uh, to the separatist movement, and it became violent. And what happened in 1996 was one consequence of that, which is that elections were being held in Kashmir by the Indian government. And this particular terrorist group wanted to send a message to India that it was against that. and so they set off this bomb in a marketplace in Delhi. Now, I think the reason that was interesting for a novel and the reason an event like 9-11 can be hard to wrap, for us to wrap our heads around is that what is the connection that a market in Delhi where innocent civilians are being killed have with a conflict that is between governments, right? And that's one thing that the book tries to humanize and get into, is the confusion and abstraction that comes around an act, um, an act of terror. When it comes to the violence in the book, you don't, you keep it very grounded. You don't really sensationalize it, unlike what we see a lot of in popular culture and other books in media. Was this a conscious choice you made, or is just sort of the natural way that things came about when you were writing the book? It was a conscious choice because we tend to glamorize violence in uh, in the media and in popular culture, and um, the experience of violence is not at all like that. In fact, when you hear descriptions of of attacks, people are even confused about whether it was an attack. Right? People don't know 
at first that a bomb has gone off. They think that maybe there was an electric malfunction or uh, a car backfired. That's a very common kind of thing people think. And so what I wanted to do was break it down into its little parts so that we could, again, experience it along with the people who go through it as opposed to watching it through the lens of a camera, which tends to make it a spectacle. And then in regards to the violence, the, the very first part of this book, that you call it chapter zero, is the bomb exploding, something that a lot of authors and readers might can you know, consider the climax of this particular story. And for those of you who were here last night, hearing you speak about it, talking about how in that first chapter, you talk about how you know the bomb kind of ex extends as it explodes, and then it sort of is nowhere and then everywhere all at once. So, in building up this story, I, we're fascinated and giving a lot of thought. I'm curious what went into having that be the first aspect of the story, and then you know what was the you know your process in kind of building up the timeline. So the thing that I read yesterday, the opening of the book was the very first thing that I wrote. Uh, and it, it came out almost fully formed. Uh, it, I mean, there was a lot of revision of the sentences that went into it and honing, but the chief sentiment that it expresses was already there. And I did, for many years afterwards, struggle with whether it should be the beginning of the book. Because as you said, if you begin with a really dramatic event, you face this problem of basically sliding downwards into boredom after that. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought about it and I felt morally actually that it was the right place to start because one thing that, one technique that cinema and novels use is that they'll present a happy family to you, show you two or three things about why they're so happy, and then two or three beats later someone's being killed or something's being blown up. And to me, that seems more manipulative than beginning with just this image of, you know, this is, a, this is a family. We don't need to know that much about them. We know this is horrific. In fact, these are deeply flawed people themselves. Victims aren't necessarily automatically noble. Um, and that if I started there, um, the, the shadow of the bomb would also be cast over the entire book. And uh, the reader would similarly feel they couldn't escape from the bomb the way the characters and the family feels they can't. So I'll follow up on that really quickly. Um, first off, if you haven't read this chapter, the idea that it was just about fully thought out in advance blows my mind, not to use a terrible you know, term. But when you say it was the first part that you wrote, when, when you wrote it, when it was written, did you know where you were going to take the story from there? Or was it, I have this thought of this bomb going off in this market, and I'll see where it takes me. I'm just really, I'm always fascinated in hearing the craft of writing something, and then the, the now what after that. No, I had no idea where it was going to go <laughs> for a very long time. And, and it was, again, um, difficult, because the big problem in writing about terrorism, I think one reason it hasn't been done very well, despite the fact that it's been such a big part of the culture now for so many years, is that it's hard to see the connection between terrorists and their victims, right? This is what I was saying earlier about what's the connection between a New Delhi marketplace and Kashmir, or um, what, you know, yes, a terrorist goes and plants a bomb and kills people, but the terrorist, it's not a personal crime, it's not a murder where you are murdering someone because you have a 
particular um, kind of rage directed at them. Here it's could be anyone just being killed, and the people being killed don't have any connection to the political event that's inspiring the act. So why did they need to be in the same book? That was one question I had to try to figure out. It's like, why not just write about the victims or just write about the terrorists? And how to write about them in the same book without having you know silly coincidences, or oh, the terrorist runs into the victim somewhere. And it, it came to me really uh, in the form of this realization that all the characters in the book are connected by a sense of grievance and victimhood. The terrorists feel they're victims, uh, which is why they think it's justifiable to do something so uh, you know, venal, in a sense, or to kill innocents. And obviously, the victims themselves develop a greater and greater sense of victimhood, particularly in India, where um, the government isn't very good at compensating victims or following up with them. So people feel kind of orphaned after they've been the victims of an attack. And so as I came across this connection, um, the book really started to bloom and grow. Uh, and it seemed that I was writing about one emotion, but through many different types of characters. That actually is a perfect segue into the next question, which is that you do write from different perspectives. And um, you know the book kind of goes in, into the mind of different um, characters, including those of the bombers. Um, what was the most difficult part of that process of like writing from that perspective and that point of view? Of the bombers? I think that it, it was that my initial stance towards them was one of uh, kind of contempt or of, um, you know, hatred or something. And over many drafts and years, I was able to essentially uh, eradicate that hatred completely which was done by focusing really on the mundane day-to-day -day tasks you would have to carry out in order to set off a bomb like this. And the minute you start seeing it as a kind of craft and a kind of um, physical act, you can empathize with that because you know it is. you have to make a journey, you have to buy things for it. And in this very strange way, if I just kept it physical, I felt I could write about it honestly. And also, as I was doing that, I began to see that um, I began to see from their perspective that they wouldn't necessarily think about their victims at all. Because part of my thinking was, well, maybe they feel a lot of guilt or so on. But then you realize we all do it every day. We abstract things in our lives. We, you know, I eat meat. I never think about uh, the killing that's gone on behind that. And so you can you can start expanding those thoughts and realize that people can justify any kind of thing. Um, so it, it was a series. It, it's it makes it this makes it sound like it was mechanical, but it was really a series of in, intuitive insights that came to me after like struggling with it for a while. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you know, there aren't a lot of at least a lot of well done books about terrorism, and I was thinking about that kind of following up with the fact that you were able to show their side of the story so well, and like you said by kind of breaking it down to the steps of it, how they got to where they got. Do you think that, you know, do you think that that's part of the reason that there aren't a lot of these books is that, you know, if you look in the, the book world from a media standpoint, I, there's this push for diversity in books, but there's also a, a harsh pushback if you write about a different culture and you don't do it correctly. And people take offense to that. And then, 
it's hard to kind of find books about terrorism written by terrorists that we would all want to read. So I, do you think that's why, I, you know, I'm joking, but do you think that that's why there aren't a lot of books that are done this way just because there is such a, maybe an unawareness of where they're coming from and a, a, a lack of people wanting to do the research to be able to speak in their voice? Uh, on the contrary, I think there's been there were a lot of attempts actually after 9/11. Like it seemed like every author everywhere was trying to do that. And uh, John Updike famously wrote a, a terrible book called Terrorist. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know there was there was many other books where people would try to write, let's say, a jihadi character, um, or people would write about the victims of of the towers. Um, I thought the main problem was not the writing across uh, the problem of writing across cultures, but rather the problem that people were exalting terrorism too much in their minds. That we uh, we have been through a series of traumas, including 9/11, including the 2008 Mumbai attacks, um, and they filled us with fear to the point that we can't see that these are, in some ways, they're just crimes. We, we attach metaphysical importance to them and political importance, but we have to actually step back and say, okay, these are crimes. This is a kind of crime that's been committed since the late 1800s when it began in, in um, Tsarist Russia. And uh, there's a long tradition of it. And if we see it that way and we see terrorists more as common criminals as opposed to some kind of uh, superhuman monster, we actually are able to um, shed the fear that terrorists want to impose on us and on societies. And I think many of the writers in the early, in the mid 2000s were operating very much in the thrall of the greatness of terror. Um, whereas the really good books written about the subject were written in the early 1900s by Conrad, uh, where he too kind of, it was a big thing, this anarchist kind of terrorism that was happening in Europe. And he was able to see that a lot of terrorists were actually stupid and petty and not that, not even that well equipped in some ways. Um, but if you choose to make them, if you choose to make them monsters in your mind, then you uh, fall prey to what they want. Sort of along those same lines, you know, we see a lot of stereotypes about terrorists and um, especially misconceptions here in America because it's not really something we have a lot of experience with in terms of reality or like our next door neighbor being a terrorist. Um, could you maybe speak a bit more about the reality of maybe where they come from or, you know, the cultures that I'm asking this terrible question <laughs> just like a bit more about like the reality of, of what that's like in the Middle East and, and, and in uh, India that kind of like creates this is this making any sense at all it needs to be a little more specific I think yeah <laughs> I think it's just what sort of like stereotypes do you see and what is the misconceptions and maybe correcting that or giving us a better idea is that yeah well I think one big misconception is that um, terrorism is a religious cr a crime it's always a political crime which uses the language of religion so uh, that's one insight that I'm trying to communicate in the book 
is that uh, you know when people set off bombs in the name of God, uh, they really are trying to advance. You know, in this case, the Kashmiri uh, cause, or they're trying to advance. They are reacting against what they think is American imperialism, but then they will to create a kind of cohesion and bonding within the group, start to use the language of religion. And when you actually do research and you read about uh, terrorists who've been arrested and are in prison, you realize many of them have never read, let's say, the Quran or the Bible. They don't know anything about religion. They know, they know as much as we know from hearing about them in the news, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Thank you. You gave a lovely answer to a terribly <laughs> asked question. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> So, speaking of the news and the media, and you kind of touched on this yesterday, and I thought it, you said it very eloquently. Uh, there is this initial, because of the way that media is now, it's very reactionary, and we need to see what's happening now, and then we need to go to the next thing so quickly. You talk about the fact that you know, this book shows what happens after bomb goes off and, and the media leaves. And you mentioned yesterday about the fact that, you know, novels such as your own it, is a a better way to look into these types of events. So can you just maybe kind of speak to that a little bit more as, as you mentioned last night about why you know books might be a little bit better of a way to look into events, you know, even if they take months and years to be created as opposed to that instant feedback that we get from the media? Yeah, well, I was speaking to a friend about this and we were talking about how we now react to the news, which is that, um, we receive a small uh, sliver of news. We, we, see, we see each news event in these slivers over a week now, let's say three or four times a day, you'll update your news feed or you'll see it on TV. And um, because it's a sliver, um, we don't actually have that much further information about it. But because it's so intensely repeated for a short amount of time, we just have the time to have our most instinctive and ideological re reaction to it. Um, and then the minute we could move on to a, a more nuanced reaction, the news itself has moved on to something else. So we're all becoming more ideological in how we react to the news. And the I think what authors try to do is step outside um, cultural and media time and to see things in a more uh, biological and human time frame. And that, I think, is one thing that books can connect us to better even than TV shows or movies. I'm curious about what your research process was for the book and who you spoke to or interviewed to kind of help you um, create these characters. Uh, I had to Google the word terrorism a lot, which was not, which is not great. <laughs> I had to check out many books about terrorism for the library, which was also probably not good. Knowing, knowing how much we're all being surveilled now, uh, you know, and uh, I can't. Uh, I've been. I feel like I've been pulled out from security more since I wrote this book, but I, do, I try not to carry it on the plane um, too much. Uh, so I uh, did. You know, I read I read tons of books. I traveled all over India. I, you know, hung around the courts. Um, I spoke to experts. Uh, it seemed, you know, it seemed endless because that's one of the problems of writing a book like this is you have to enter into many cultural spaces that you don't in your everyday life. 
uh, I'm not religious, but I wanted to write sympathetically about someone who goes through a religious conversion. Um, and literature, strangely, has always done a bad job writing about religious characters. Uh, we, uh, writers tend to write about religion with a kind of contempt. Um, but I felt it wasn't the right angle to take, uh, and that it was too easy. So I really was trying to learn a lot about how religion works, too, and, and uh, in particular, how why a, why a kind of younger person might seek solace in Islam, um, what what would drive him into uh, a more fundamental version of it. So, you know, there was I had to essentially at the very end stop researching and sit down and write it because otherwise, you know, I'd be still working on it. Did you have a chance to speak with survivors of attacks like this? And then if so, were, were those people that you, you know, spoke with, if you did, were they apprehensive to tell their story? I'm, I'm curious from like the, a personal standpoint. Yeah, I spoke to some people in this market mm -hmm. and um, they were very apprehensive and didn't want to speak about it because that's how people tend to respond to trauma. I think in India, it's, it's more people are, people kind of feel, look, it's happened, we have to move on. And especially, it's, sometimes it's a smart strategy in a culture that isn't going to care about you anyway. Um, so it was hard to draw them out, but as it is with anyone, once you did draw them out, they would tell you a lot. And their memories of the attack were very vivid. Their memories of being victimized by the government were even more vivid than the, than the memories of, they didn't, they didn't actually have that much hatred towards the terrorists at this point, which was interesting. Um, and they were suspicious of even if the police had even arrested the right people. In terms of, and I spoke also to uh, a therapist who had treated <coughs> victims of terror, uh, which was actually the most insightful thing because people had opened up to him in private in a way they wouldn't to me. So really is all about trying to find those channels of information. For anyone who may be interested in learning more just about Indian culture in general, do you have any suggestions for books, um, perhaps by Indian authors, that might give a good you know, entryway into understanding um, Indian life a little bit more? Um, I'm trying to, uh, let me think. I think one book that comes to mind is by an author named Atish Tasir, and it's called The Way Things Were. Um, it's, it paints a very accurate picture of modern New Delhi and the rise of Hindu fundamentalism. There are, I mean, a number of books by Salman Rushdie, uh, Midnight's Children, um, V.S. Naipaul's uh, non-fiction books about India, including India, A Million Mutinies Now, um, are totally worth reading. Arundhati Roy's first book, uh, The God of Small Things, is, is a great book about South India. R.K. Narayan uh, was the first famous Indian writer in English, and he um, wrote these very funny short novels that are all set in this one imaginary town, kind of the way Faulkner does it. And, um, you know, he is, is probably my favorite of the Indian writers and is really loved in India as well. He used to be read in the West a lot, but isn't anymore because in a strange way, he's, he's quite apolitical. And I think uh, when people are seeking out books from other cultures, they tend to seek out the more political books, but I would urge you to read him. Uh, I think he's, um, 
I mean, he's just hilarious, which is good. <laughs> Sure, Narayan, N-A-R-A-Y-A-N. Yeah, sure. Um, and then just, I'm curious from a re as yourself as a reader, when you got done with all of the research for this book and you wrote it, you sent it off to your editor and you wash your hands of it, do you remember the, the books that you started reading after the fact? Was it, were you actively kind of looking for lighter things or you know as a just as a reader in general what types of genres do you find yourself enjoying that's a great question because yeah i didn't want to read any more books about terrorism <laughs> that's and i really have avoided them since and in a way what's good about writing a book like this is that it cures you of some of your own fears about a subject if you immerse yourself in something for that many years i'm, I'm obviously feel a great deal of grief when I read about terror attacks now, but I feel I, I don't I have don't have that feeling of why is this happening, uh, which used to always haunt me. I, I think I've begun to get to the bottom of that. But I started reading, um, you know, a, a lot of nonfiction. I think I enjoy reading nonfiction, and um, I'm trying to think of something specific that I can tell you. There was all these like funny travel logs from India that I was enjoying for a while. Are you working on anything now that you can share with us? Uh, definitely can't share it. It <laughs> doesn't exist in any kind of shareable form. But uh, I'm trying to write another book. All right, so we could keep asking questions all day, but I'd love to have some other people let their voice be heard. So if you have any questions, by all means, you can raise your hand, and I, I think we'll bring a microphone to you. Yeah, and thank you for the great questions. all terrorists are criminals, it's not really up for debate, right? I mean, we want to imprison them. Uh, but I, what I was saying is that, yes, I didn't want to, in writing the book, I didn't want to produce some kind of diabolical creature who is setting off bombs, which is our first instinct. And I wanted to see them more clearly as, as people who are connected to other criminal networks who they have to steal a car, let's say, if they're going to set off a car bomb. So that's one kind of criminal act. They have to steal money. So if you get into all those things, the act, uh, you can begin to see many more holes in it as well, right? Because we just see the final effect of the bombing, which is this terrifying thing. But if you look at the build-up slowly, I, I think you de-glamorize the act. Right, well, yeah, I, I definitely understand that we don't want to glamorize those folks, but there is almost a polarization of, or a polarity of glamorizing these folks versus making them into criminals, common, or common criminals actually, maybe is, is, is what I was hearing from you. Mm. I think sometimes these things are a whole lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And you know, the cri criminal violent acts are against systems um, against which these people, and I'm not in any way defending them, 
but I think it's a whole lot more complicated. I mean, we we have we have lots of other institutions that are criminal criminal institutions as well. So that's that's why I was mm -hmm. just asking for some clarity around that. Yeah, sure. No, you're fine. You can you're, no, you're the one running around. You're doing great. Well, I'm so happy to be here. This is a day of being unemployed. has paid off. <laughs> I was going to say, you're so handsome in person. You're a handsome <laughs> Well, I want to ask you, because I'm a writer, too. Nothing published yet. Um, at 12 years old, did you, when you were writing this, did your memories, when you were 12, did they just flood your mind and just... How, what was that process that you just, did you get really emotional just thinking about it? Could you remember that and just touch on when it happened, when you experienced it and to the point where you wrote this book? Yeah, it, it's a great question because I, A, I was just surprised that this memory of the bombing was coming back to me because I hadn't been present for it, but I'd heard a lot about it. So it was as if the, the different viewpoints of other people that had been contributing these images came together and I was able to put them down. And then there was a period where I was, again, struggling to figure out how to make this a personal book, right? Because it's it could be a political and abstract kind of subject. And I realized that I was avoiding certain subjects, which were uh, the places in Delhi that I knew very well. And the minute I started writing about those places, all these memories started coming back um, of the different, uh, the, just the texture of the time, the way people used to talk, the way Delhi looked, uh, the changes that the city went through afterwards. Uh, so that always feels kind of mystical and amazing when you tap into that, but it, it requires you to really, you know, you have to overcome certain self-imposed barriers in a way. Uh, uh, in present day, do you think there's a new ideology, a strategy to terrorism, such as Al-Qaeda compared to ISIS? Do you think media is overplaying or broadcasting ISIS? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's hard for me to say. I'm not an expert in either of those things, but I do think that you're right that we tend to um, over-broadcast uh, terrorism, and that, of course, these crimes are committed with the aim of uh, garnering attention. Like, every time we speak about terrorism, unfortunately, we're playing into the hands of terrorists. But there's also no way around it, because if a number of people are being killed, it has to be reported. So I think there's a way in which it can be done where uh, it's sensationalized less, I think. Um, one would hope that eventually that would begin to happen. And I think there is a kind of terror fatigue setting in as well, uh, which will dampen the effect these attacks have, hopefully, over time. Yep. I'd like to ask a follow-up question to this ladies. Mm -hmm. uh, the terrorism that what you mentioned is, OK, you narrow down to criminal act, but there are governments and agencies that glorify its mm -hmm. the terrorists as freedom fighters. So I just wanted to know your views on it. Yeah, there's a lot of that in the book. Um, and, and, and a lot of the, the 
struggle in the book was figuring out, I think as you were saying earlier, how do you get into the minds of people who are committing a crime for relatively abstract reasons, which is what I said earlier when I was talking, which is that if you, you can kind of understand a murder, right? If someone is really has a wants to take revenge on someone, they go out and they, they attack them. But why does why does a Kashmiri separatist think that a bomb in Delhi is going to change the Indian government's response to terrorism and so on? And so I went back and did a lot of um, reading about this too, and it was very interesting to see that Osama bin Laden gave some speeches, I think in 2005, or it was even later perhaps, where he takes credit for America's uh, declining economy. And he says, and this is how he justifies it, he says, uh, this was all stuff we'd planned, which was that we caused this huge attack on US soil, and then the US took the bait and started two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, these wars uh, sucked the treasury dry. Uh, they also uh, you know, stalled Congress by uh, people having debates about the debt ceiling and so on. And so you, it's so perverse, but in a way, if you, if you see it that way, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because another response would have been to have a much smaller kind of hunt for Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan and to not change the course of the country's history based on a provocation. So there was all these different ideas swirling around uh, where, yeah, I would then think about governments and systems and I would think about why these people would choosing to carry out the attacks they will. Thank you. Um, I think all this discussion so far has been on the nature of the motivation mm -hmm. of the terrorist act, with some exceptions. What I'm sort of interested in hearing from you is, what is the nature of the ripple effect of these events? Mm -hmm. Because there are so many terrorist activities that are happening now compared to maybe 20, 30 years ago, that there are two aspects I think about. One is people react differently to repeated information about a terrorist act. Um, and also, there is such a huge ripple effect of these things. Um, for example, um, if you knew somebody in the 9-11 attacks, uh, I happen to know two of them, the people that died there. It made me more sensitive to these news right. than it might have otherwise. Totally. And before that, I wasn't that sensitive. And then my daughter, who happens to be a Stanford graduate also, it's a good place. <laughs> <laughs> she was staying at the Oberoi in Mumbai during that attack. Oh my god. So that further sensitizes you to these things. And so my reaction, to um, repeated news about terrorism, in, whether it's in Paris or wherever, I think it's a little bit different than maybe lots of other people that, mm -hmm. as you said, may be becoming inured to the news. So do you know of a good book on terrorism that explores these ripple effects on people that are nowhere near the victims or nowhere near the mm. act of terrorism? yet they're affected by these events? Uh, huh, I'll have to think about that. I don't, nothing comes to mind uh, right now, but 
it certainly is something that needs to be written about. I've, I've tried in my book to talk about how terrorism becomes a kind of psychosomatic state for a city. Um, that, you know, it's very interesting. So much of this country is, is obsessed with terrorism, right? But then you go to a very rural part of the country and you, you're confused. Why are people in this part of the country so obsessed with terrorism? It's unlikely that it's going to happen in this town of 200 people. So I've started to say terrorism is a crime of the city that obsesses people in rural areas. Um, <laughs> because because you find that you know cities are much more vulnerable. People in cities actually find a way to keep going on. But if you're sitting away from the event, you start imagine. This is the same thing of people over imagining the thing that they haven't actually been near. So uh, I I try to get into that in the book, which is you know what are the consequences of just being near one of these things and not dipping into it, and then the victims of the attack become sensitized to terrorism in the way you are talking about, where they start empathizing more with all the little attacks that are happening around the world. You got time for one more back there? For, for those of us that did not yet read your book, are there any misconceptions or missing background information that you have found some readers uh, misunderstood parts of your book? Uh, great question. You know, I feel lucky. I don't think it's been misunderstood. But I know that I purposefully don't always explain the many political references in the book. And the reason is that when I write, I'm writing in my mind for an audience that basically is me. Because I've now lived between the US and India, and I find it easier to orient myself using myself as the axis. Otherwise, I would be torn between over-explanation for American readers and um, kind of boring Indian readers, on the other hand. And I want the book to actually possess the flavor of a book that's been translated almost out of an Indian language. And so it needs to stand as a text that Indians would find surprising to not just people in the West. And I think that's true of, that is, should be the hallmark of books about other cultures, is that they're not texts that are, uh, they're not textbooks, right? They're, they're documents, visceral documents from another place. And so I think that certainly there are times when people will say, oh, I don't really know what this political party is supposed to stand for in India that you mentioned here, or I don't quite know what uh, the history of the Kashmiri conflict is. And I think that's actually fine, because the book uh, it exists kind of independent of those things. And if you're interested, you can, you can look those things up as well. Okay, I, I know there's a lot more questions. Uh, I want to give you guys a chance to you know, say hello and, and get those questions answered in just a minute. But I, I just want to say from a personal standpoint, having been there yesterday and, and seeing the celebration of these important books and with everything going on, you know, talking about the media and the way that things are conveyed, it'd be really easy to get depressed and feel very stressed out and like our country and our world is going completely backwards. But seeing just from up here, I can see a little bit better than you guys can, the different backgrounds and cultures in this room having an incredible discussion about a wonderful book gives me hope. So I just want to thank all of you guys for joining us here today. Um, and to a big round of applause for our guest of honor. But again, I want to give you And now I think we're going to sign some books. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.
Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.